Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today for our weekly news analysis show is my co-host, attorney and Republican strategist, Jay Carson. Before we get to the show today, we're hoping you can help us out by taking part in a short survey that can really help out our advertisers and bring you better content. To take it, go to podcastlistener.com slash TPG. That's podcastlistener.com slash TPG. We'll also put that URL in the show notes. We'd really appreciate it if you could help us out with that. It's a really short thing. It should only take you just a few minutes. Thanks very much. We start the show with the tragic events that took place in Las Vegas, where a gunman killed 58 people and wounded over 500 before taking his own life. While investigations are still ongoing, we know that he meticulously planned the slaughter, had 23 weapons, I believe it was, including a number modified with so-called bump stocks to alter them from semi-automatic to effectively automatic, as well as, as, well as a large supply of ammunition and multiple high-capacity magazines. Now, in the wake of this incident, we've seen basically what we always see when there's yet another tragic mass shooting. We're reminded that the United States has an inordinate amount of guns and gun violence compared to other rich, developed countries. Uh, Liberals call for new restrictions on guns. Conservatives fight against these restrictions, arguing that uh, they don't address the issue at hand or that the solution is more good guys with guns or that the real problem is mental illness or that easy access to guns is so important that it's worth paying the toll in gun dust that we inevitably pay. Um, so it's, it's a standard kind of thing we've seen again and again and again, unfortunately. So, Jay, uh, what do you have to say first about the incident and then, you know, the political aftermath that we're seeing? Well, I, there's really nothing that, that I can say uh, about the, the actual incident. Um, you know, again, uh, it's beyond understanding why someone would do something like this. Uh, There is at this point uh, no, no motive. Uh, Not that that even makes it, makes it better. Uh, I guess it it maybe makes it a little more understandable. You understand what your, there's, there's more of a why to it than, than just the accepting of, Hey, here's someone who was, who was just uh, either evil or, or so, uh, 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 sick and disturbed that, that he'd do something like this. So, uh, you know, there's, there's not a lot that I can say about that. And I'm, I'm not really competent to talk about that, I guess. Um, as far as the, the politics of it, you're, you're right. Um, and I guess my first thought is, I mean, it's, it's, it's a shame and it's unfortunate that our politics works this way, but I, I don't know that there's any other way that it can, that, you know, some tragedy happens and then all of a sudden, um, there are, you know, forces who say, Oh, something, something has to be done, can be done, should be done. I mean, I'm, I'm have been, and am still of the position that, um, there are some things that you simply can't fix by policy tweaks. And I'm not, I'm not sure what, policy tweaks, uh, could be made that, that would have prevented this. Um, I mean, I think there's, there's been some discussion on the the bump stock issue. And, um, to me, that's probably the, I guess the biggest, if, if there's one thing, and it seems there's, there's some bipartisan agreement on, on that, uh, treating bump stocks, uh, as, as, um, uh, regulating them as you would other class three firearm conversion stuff. Um, that that would make a difference. Would it would it have 
fundamentally changed this? I, I don't, I don't know. Um, and, and, uh, so I, you know, I guess that's, that's right. That's, that's where I am. It's, it's sort of a tough, uh, a tough thing to, to talk about, but I, I think the, the bump stock, um, option, and we should probably explain to, uh, our, our listeners, um, you know, the, the firearms are, well, I'll, I'll turn it back to you. I want, I want to, I want to hear more what, what you've got as far as, I mean, what, what do you think could, could be done or should be done in, in the wake of this? Because yeah. I'm. Well, well, you know, my, my first reaction, like a lot of people's, I think was saying, uh, I, I'm so sick and tired of hearing, uh, policymakers, political leaders send their thoughts and prayers and leave it at that. You know, that, I mean, it's been the same sort of thing and thoughts that's not the, that's not to say that thoughts and prayers aren't, aren't useful and important and so forth. But like, I think many millions of Americans, I am, I'm deeply frustrated that this seems to happen here again and again and again at a, at a rate that just far surpasses any other rich developed country. It's this, you know, sadly and uniquely uh, American sort of thing. And so that was my first reaction. Uh, I think it's an understandable reaction. Uh, you see a tragedy and you want uh, one in a string of tragedies and you want something done. Then I thought about it a little bit more and I sort of dug into some of the studies and the data and, and the policy prescriptions. And, and I came up with something that I think was uh, a little less uh, emotional, I guess, and I, I would hope a little more practical. But before I get to that, I just think we should thank our uh, first and our only sponsor for today's show, this other extra special, uh, that's Blue Apron. Blue Apron is, as you know, Jay, the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the United States. And their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. And that includes even me. I can't cook worth anything, but they make it possible for me too. And they do it all with super fresh, high quality ingredients, partnering with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States and sourcing ingredients to support a sustainable food system. And Jay, I know you get Blue Apron meals too, and you've been really happy with the services as well, right? Absolutely. You can't, you can't beat the, the convenience uh, for being able to, to have a real home cooked uh, meal uh, as opposed to uh, what, what often happens with a busy family, which is, you know, sort of a heating up chicken nuggets uh, sort of, sort of scenario. So uh, Blue Apron uh, lets you get uh, a, a real, a real dinner uh, for the, on the table for the family. Um, and, uh, it's, it's something you, you feel good about cooking and, and, uh, they feel good about eating. Yeah. I, yeah. And I also like the fact that it's really flexible. There are some weeks where I just say, you know what, I just want to skip meals. I'm on vacation or whatever it is. And it's totally easy to do that. So that's, that's nice as well. And the meals are really great. I mean, listen to some of their featured upcoming meals, cheesy chicken and black bean enchiladas with salsa verde, uh, shrimp marinara with spaghetti, spinach, and parsley. And this one's my favorite. I think maple gravy, smothered pork chops with stewed collard greens and sweet potatoes. Uh, that sounds really good. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't it? And plus it's a really great value. I mean, less than $10 per person per meal and it's delivered right to your door. So, hey, check out this week's menu and get $30 off your first meal with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash TPG. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash TPG. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay, so, you know, I was saying I had some ideas about things. Um, and, you know, 
Before I get to those, I should point out that one thing that Republicans say all the time that I think is fair is that Democrats and liberals, that they don't necessarily entirely overlap, but generally, do in fact do kind of a bait and switch on this issue. I mean, uh, you know, it's true that most of the, the, the gun regulations that have been proposed would do little if nothing to prevent uh, these sort of mass shootings. I, I think that, you know, uh, the Washington Post did a study on this and a number of folks have done studies on this who are not, you know, conservative groups and say, well, that's absolutely the right. truth. I w- actually, I was going to point to uh, in the Post, Leah Labresco, who uh, used to be with 538. Um, and she had a, a piece on this. And, and she, again, she starts by saying, I'm not a, you know, she's her 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 place would be sort of I, I'm not, she's not a gun person she'd be happy to to see a lot of this banned but that the research of the proposals she's looked at and that's looking at things that that they did in in Britain and Australia wouldn't have changed much here but yeah. go ahead but that being said and I think that's a fair point the problem that people who are concerned about our massive gun death problem. And we're talking, I believe at the last figures I saw something like uh, in gun deaths, 33,000 or something like that a year. That, I mean, yeah. That's the number that I keep saying. And, now, although we, we should clarify that when we're talking about that 33,000, uh, that includes, well, let me get uh, to that. A, I know third, which let, are, are suicides. Let me get to that. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I yeah. understand. I'm, I'm jumping on your, your yeah. conservative no, no, talking I, I'm point. Saying, yeah, there's a lot of different problems and you address them differently. But yeah, yeah my point is, is that and just I was going to say, you know, the, the vast majority of gun deaths in this country are, in fact, suicides. Uh, when you take a look at the breakdown, you know, suicides, homicides, mass shootings, they're the things that get, of course, all the publicity, but they make up a tiny fraction. And so here's the problem for people who are concerned. And I think people, everyone should be concerned about our just bizarrely outlier problem in this country with gun deaths is that. How do you get people to care about it? You know, and because, you know, gun suicides are basically one-off type things. Uh, homicides are sort of small things that might get covered in local papers, that sort of thing, local news, but that's it. And so what liberals, what people who care about this do is they try to use these mass shootings as sort of a focusing event on the issue of gun violence, gun deaths, that sort of thing, and hope that that can, that sort of, you know, uh, short uh, public attention span can carry over into some legislation. So yes, it is sort of a bait and switch, but I think it's a bait and switch for a very good reason, because this is a really serious problem. And if you don't use these events to focus public attention on it, then it's just not going to happen at any other time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, I guess that that, that gets to to my point and sort of the, the point of uh, uh, Labresco in, in the post is, right, you can you could focus on this, but what exactly you're going to, and I should also correct myself, I misspoke. I said uh, a third are suicides, two thirds of, of, of that 33,000 are suicides. Um, but, uh, you know, what what steps do can can you take? And and that's that's where it becomes less clear. I mean, if you're going to take steps and, and then admit, say, well, this doesn't really help the problem, uh, or perhaps it might help it, it, it only at the margins. Uh, you know, what, what, what are you doing? And that's, you know, what the right's concerned with. And I've, you know, so, I mean, I guess what, what thoughts would, I mean, again, to me, I, you can look at this and say, uh, bump stocks. Yeah, that's, that's an issue. Um, and also, I mean, I think our listeners should know there, there's this, this misperception that 
uh, guns are somehow unregulated. Uh, it's probably the most regulated industry uh, outside of like the financial industry uh, in, in the country in terms of uh, what you're allowed to buy, who's allowed to buy it, especially when you're getting into the higher end type things. Uh, you know, automatic weapons have been illegal uh, for, you know, virtually forever. Um, and in order to to buy one, um, even as sort of a collector, you have to have a certain um, licensure. To sell it, you have to have a, a what's called a class three licensure. Um, and to get those, you have to go through numerous background checks. This isn't the thing of, you know, this misperception of, oh, I can go to a gun show, buy a machine gun. Um, also, even the, the, the equipment that would convert um, a, a semi-automatic into a full automatic. Uh, is, is also treated in that class three firearm. They're called uh, sears, uh, which can turn a, um, uh, a semi-automatic into a full automatic. Now the bump stock does, you know, maybe not quite as effectively the same thing. It turns it into like an almost automatic. But I, I think if you want to put that in that same regulatory category as these other um, uh, gun uh, gun uh, changes and so forth that that you can you can you know do do on your own that that's pretty reasonable and it fits into the regulatory structure that's already out there but but beyond that i'm not sure what you do until you start getting to the we're going to ban guns well there are a number of things where there's bi where there are bipartisan majorities in in favor of of taking action for instance uh, uh preventing mentally ill people from buying guns uh wait let me let me just let me just hold on again that's already but let me let me get through let me get through my list of things first before you before you critique them okay um just to be you know i i because i think there are some things that we that we can do like i said preventing mentally ill people from getting guns uh preventing people on no flyer watch lists from getting guns uh background checks for private sales at gun shows because right now you don't re- those checks aren't required for private sellers only for dealers uh, banning assault we- assault style weapons creating a federal database to track gun sales a- and uh, banning high capacity magazines now all of those things have majority support the only the, the banning high capacity magazines that has not quite majority Republican support but all of those things are politically, viable if you know if uh, congress chose to act on those there would be you know that that amount of the public support at least but you know to your point i'm sure you're going to say well what would that do to prevent mass shootings i would say you know not a whole lot but it it would make at least some difference at the margins perhaps uh for uh, uh gun homicides and 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 gun suicides and you know I think that's worth doing just for those reasons and it's not a matter of banning guns or anything like that and of course that's the NRA playbook is any gun regulation that you can think of even with the bump stocks you know you said that they were they were uh you know in favor of of perhaps banning them but they were very very careful perhaps we should look at consider talking about that sort of thing and and that's the NRA's view is everything is about they're going to take away our guns they're going to take away our guns and that's that's how they well, that's and, how they do it but, you but know? It's, it's not necessarily with without cause i mean if, if you look at oh please you know I you, think you talk about the, the bait and switch and, and that's exactly what what conservatives uh, are concerned about uh is that there is the bait and switch of hey let's let's have some some regulations to prevent these kind of tragedies 
And okay, oh, the next step is uh, we'll take all your guns. There was there was a really interesting piece by in the New York Times by uh, Brett Stevens, who who is a conservative, and his you know the piece is titled <laughs> "Abolish the Second Amendment." Um, and and a lot of folks on the right, uh, you know, took some you know great consternation to that. Uh, but his point was, if you really if if the left is really serious about doing this, uh, really serious about making a change in our gun culture. That's what they're going to have to do, uh, and, and it would have to be. And, and again, this is this is something else. The left says, "Oh, or we we just want common sense solutions and things everything and everyone can agree on." And then the next breath, say, "Well, like Australia, you know, which confiscated guns and 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 you know makes it legal to to have one." Um, so I, I mean, I think that's that's where the concern is. So I, I don't think it's necessarily paranoia. Um, from from the NRA uh, uh, on doing that, and look, that's their that's their job. It's illogical because it's it's. I mean, it's a slippery slope fallacy. Just because somebody, I mean, the idea that you would be opposed to something that's you know has a fair amount of popular support that has nothing to do with banning guns, because at some point then guns could be banned. I mean, that that's that's one of the that's one of the most common logical fallacies in the book. The NRA people are smart, and, and but, but, no, but, let me let me finish here. You, let me finish. That, you know, again, the left kind of uses these tragedies. To, to enact something that won't affect the tragedy, but will affect their, their broader goal. And, and look, I, I think it's, uh, you know, the, the left thought to sort of be honest that, yes, what they want is to ban guns. And I mean, again, uh, President Obama had expressed his admiration for uh, what the Australians have done. Uh, I think Hillary Clinton has done the same. Um, um, notably, Bernie Sanders would not because Vermont's a big gun state, which is just a weird, a weird twist. But um I, I, look, I, I think that's 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 the concern. I just wanted to make sure you were done, so I could maybe get yeah, a word no, in no, edgewise no. here. Um, well, because I mean, well, you're talking about the left wants to ban guns, and I just categorically reject that. I'm a, I'm a person of the left. I don't want to ban guns. I know that there are millions of people on the left who don't want to ban guns, and so I think that's entirely unfair. Okay, which 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 was to the, uh, well, all right. Let me let me go go back to the the other the other things that you had mentioned. Uh, look, mental health um, screening. Let's not allow people with with serious mental health health issues uh, to buy guns. Okay, um, but how how do you tell? Uh, and I think that's the next step. I mean, as it stands now, uh, for example, to get a concealed carry license. Uh, to purchase some types, you have to make sure you're not you haven't been adjudicated uh, mentally ill. Now it's it's sort of tough to get adjudicated mentally ill. Um, it's it's sort of few and far between. Um, so so you're not necessarily going to going to catch that group of people. Um, I'm not sure what else what else you do uh, to track those people down. Now. Uh, you know, and also let's look at what we say by what we mean by mental illness. Uh, clearly, it's one thing if somebody is is a, a schizophrenic. Uh, what if they've got anxiety issues? I mean, are they both mentally? I mean, how do you how do you differentiate? You're missing in, the larger point. In terms of the point. broad spectrum of mental illness, as to who should be allowed to have a gun and who should not. And and what about people who have may have had mental illness issues in the past, but they're better. Are they then prohibited forever from buying a gun? 
But you're missing the larger point is that this issue isn't even allowed to be discussed in Congress. It's just shut down before. And, you know, you raise some important, important points. And that's the sort of thing that uh, that gets worked out in the legislative process. And if we can't find good solutions and they say, well, OK, let's not do that. But it's not even discussed. The NRA's worked really hard to make sure that the federal government doesn't even do serious studies and gather a lot of data on this problem. So the the I mean, and you know, it, you know, you, well, I, I mean, other people can do studies and gather data. I mean, it doesn't have to be the government, right? Well, why, why not the government, given that this is such a huge public health issue? Why not? Well, because the NRA, I mean, it's, not, it's important to understand how the NRA works. The NRA has its power, gets its power, not through funding congressional campaigns with, you know, tens of millions of dollars. Their funding, their funding reach is actually pretty, pretty small. Exactly. No, they it, get it's their power. But yeah, no, you're I know what you're about to say. And you're you're exactly right. So go ahead. Yeah, they get their power because they focus on uh, well, they, they focus on their very large and engaged group of members. And what they do is they constantly stoke this fear of they're going to take away your guns. They're going to take away your guns. And that's incredibly powerful. Because that gives them this this great edge because this is this idea of, well, we're going to take something tangible away from you. Whereas the pro-gun people, unless they've been directly affected by gun violence, and that's a, you know, a large and growing group still, that's a, that's a more ephemeral kind of thing. And so there, there are a large number of people who are NRA supporters. There are, there are a large number of people who are gun owners. And the more effectively the NRA can stoke this fear of your guns going to be taken away, the more effectively they can act. And that's why, that's one of the big reasons why we don't see any gun legislation, even stuff that large majorities approve of, like uh, uh, preventing the mentally Ill, Ill from purchasing guns or preventing people on no-fly or watch lists. And that's a lot, that's, that's something that's a lot easier to determine, obviously, than the mental illness thing. And not well, only again, that- my, my issue on the, the no-fly or watch list is, again, you're talking about, is there an adjudication uh, rather than, listen, you have a right or would otherwise have a right, again, setting aside the Second Amendment. Um, Sure, but it doesn't uh, you even have get discussed right to, in Congress. To own a gun, um, but but we have suspicions about you. Uh, they may be valid, they may not be valid. So you are not going to be able to exercise that right. Sure, but you're again. You're missing the larger point. I think is that you. I mean, you raise some important some important questions. I absolutely agree. But this doesn't even get discussed in Congress. So it doesn't well, even I'm, get I'm to the point. It. Well, yeah, I mean, you're not in Congress. You know, yeah, <laughs> you, you don't have to worry about the NRA just uh, you know totally torpedoing you. Okay, how about this one? Background checks for private sales at gun shows. Um, you know, I don't know. Um, my sense is, has there? There's not been any. Uh, any any violence ever linked to this? I mean, again, the so-called gun gun show loophole. Um, you know, and, and again, that most of those private sales, they're uh, it's collectors. It's you know, so I've you know, I, I, at this point, I, would I necessarily oppose that? Not necessarily. Would it do anything? No. Um, well, sure, but, it would it would it might. It would potentially do something in terms of not the mass shooting thing, but the the larger gun problem. So in that sense, but well, it would no, it would it would allow the left to feel like they're doing something. It would be say, hey, like we feel better now. Look what we did. Uh, we we made this change that wasn't really a problem. Um, you know, and, and again, but 
but yeah, I mean, that, that was that something if, if this was a, you know, we were talking about what, what, uh, do I think is not unreasonable? Could I live with? Yeah, I think that's not unreasonable. Um, but nor do I, nor do I see it as necessary. Well, um, you know, and I've spent most of this very long segment that we've had, uh, <laughs> I kind of knew it would be, uh, sort of really pushing back pretty hard uh, on you here. But I will say one thing I think that sometimes uh, people on the left forget, and I think it's important to bring up, uh, it's something I try to keep in mind, is there are millions of Americans who honestly believe that uh, that uh the gun deaths that we have in this country, the disproportionate, tragic number of gun deaths we have in this country, they are the price we pay for freedom, and it's a price worth paying. Bill O'Reilly said something about it in his, I think, blog this week. You know, and I think this is a really interesting and important point. Now, on the left, the natural reaction and my reaction is, what, are you crazy? The price we pay, it's not worth it. But to millions of Americans, as I understand it, the way they look at it is, there is a very real possibility that we may have to take up arms against the tyrannical government at some point in the not too distant future. Now, I think that's ridiculous and paranoid, but I know. I, I oh, wait, let, let me go ahead. Go yeah. ahead. I'll try a second. But but I know that millions of Americans legitimately feel that way. Second, secondly, and this is kind of overlapping category, there are millions of Americans who honestly believe that at some point in their lifetimes. There will be a massive breakdown in social order, whether it's through some kind of a superbug, whether it's through, uh, you know, North Korea detonating nukes, whether it's through climate change, zombie invasion, whatever it Zombies, is. Zombies, yes. Whatever no, it is. I, I, think, I think the latter is, 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 a, is a bigger category. Yeah. The point being that government will not be able to protect them and they will need to take matters into their own hands. And so when, when we think about on the left, I, you know, when we think about how are people justifying this? I think it seems bizarre, I know, to millions of people on the left, but there are honestly a lot of Americans who believe one or both of those things. And when you factor that in, then you can say, well, that at least helps us to better understand their thinking. Because I think while there are some people on both sides of this issue, I think as someone on the left, I think there are people on the right who are, who are, uh, uh, awful, bad people demagoguing this issue. But I think the vast majority of Americans who are, are gun owners and support a lot of this stuff, I don't think they're doing it because they're bad, evil people who don't care about tens of thousands of Americans being killed. I think they have some mistaken fundamental beliefs. But, you know, as we said time and time again, suggesting that, well, that they just must be evil and or stupid, that doesn't really get us anywhere. And, and what frustrates me about this debate is it seems to me that a lot of people on on the left, their initial reaction is to say, well, if you're not for this, you are a, a reprehensible human being. You don't care about these deaths. And and I think, number one, that's just simply not true in the vast majority of cases. And number two, even if it were true, it doesn't help to convert the people you need to convert to get what you sure. want done, done. And so sure. why, why won't all these deplorables vote for us? Uh, you yes. know, exa exactly. So, and so that's, that's very, you know, deeply frustrating to me on this. So uh, before we move on, Jay, do you think anything's going to happen on this? I mean, do you think there's going to be maybe some sort of uh, movement on the, say the bump stock issue at least? I, I think there will. I think there will be some sort of movement on, on the bump stock. Um, I, I want to just just hit a point though that 
go back to something that you know the the people were afraid people some that someone's going to come and take away their guns if if in the pre heller days if you lived in washington dc or chicago or a number of these other cities that banned handguns well that you know i i mean what else would you call that uh, if if the city you live in says you are not allowed to own, and again, you, assuming you owned a handgun for personal protection, uh, you are not allowed to own, own a handgun. I mean, uh, what is that if it's not a ban on guns? And if the government were to find out that you had one, eventually they would it would be their duty to come and take it away. So I, I mean, that's why I, you know, there's always this 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 sense that that's just this uh, uh, demo, demagogue type argument. Um, but it's, it's not, uh, that unrealistic. Well, it's a ban on handguns, right? And not guns in general. We should point that out. Sure, but, if, but if, if the only kind of gun that you have is a handgun, well, they're going to come and take your gun. Um, now again, the, the, you know, person who works late night at, uh, uh, convenience store on a, on a not so great end of town, um, you know, maybe carrying a rifle back and forth to work isn't, isn't that convenient. Um, you know, the, the student, and, and again, I'm talking about, I knew, I knew women, um, in law school, uh, who carried guns in their purses, uh, for, you know, late nights at, uh, you know, in, in Columbus, Ohio. And again, it's, it's not as if Columbus, Ohio and Ohio state is some hotbed of crime, but, but look, there's, there's shady areas, there's shady people. Uh, and there are situations where, uh, the police either can't get to you quick enough um, to protect you or, you know, they, but, but that's uh, why we have a second amendment. I mean, you know, I, I am not a ban. I am not a, you know, overturn, uh, you know, repeal the second amendment person, but to me, that's exactly why we have a second amendment. And I think the court's right is that, you know, there is, I believe the court got it right and that there is an individual right to bear arms and it's not just a militia thing, but also, that uh, jurisdictions are able to put in place, you know, uh, reasonable regulations that don't entirely ban guns, but they can they can regulate them to a you know to a fairly to a fairly significant degree, and that's the democratic process at work. If the people of Chicago or D.C. or you know California want to do that, and the people of Montana or Alabama don't want to do that, hey, federalism at work. Right. But again, not to the not to the point of saying uh, our reasonable regulation is you can't have one. Right. Well, that's I mean, again, that's, why we have a second amendment with the court. Said. And I think we agree on that. But but my only point is when people on the right say the left, if, if they're if given their way, they will take away my gun. And that's kind of poo pooed as, oh, no, they'd never do that. Well, except in Washington and Chicago and <laughs> New York and, and all these these other places where. You know, we've said that. So I, I'm just I'm just trying to say that that fear is not un, unrealistic. Well, I think it's unrealistic in uh, a broad is, basis, is, as you might portray it as. And also, again, it's not that it's not like Heller doesn't exist. So the idea of being right. able to take away well, guns it, but entirely. It, but, it, but again, if you, if you would ask, uh, let, let's put it this way: if you ask Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton uh, what their position on Heller was, uh, if you looked at, uh, uh, I think the government filed an amicus brief. <laughs> for what their position on Heller was, uh, you know, I, they would, they would be clearly on the yes, take it away. So that's, I'm, I'm just, just saying, put our cards on the table here. So. Okay. Um, 
Well, let's move from one very contentious issue to another. This might be our most contentious politics guys ever, Jay. I don't know. Um, contentious. Well, no, I think it was a little contentious, but that's okay. Where you know, I think you know, one of the important things is, you know, this is one of these issues uh, that you and I, I think, have you know some significant areas of dis- disagreement on. But it's not like uh, I think that you're disagreeing because you're stupid and evil, and you know, I think you don't think the same. You know, I think you could say the same thing of me. Uh, I would hope certainly. No, no. But but uh, you know, these are these are the. I mean, this is the the gun issue. Before we move on, obviously, is one of the most cont- contentious issues in American politics. It ranks right up there with uh, reproductive freedom, abortion rights. You know, um, and gerrymandering. Well, gerrymandering. Yeah. Speaking <laughs> of. Let's talk a little bit about gerrymandering. You know, this week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a case that I think is a good chance of changing the way redistricting is done in some states. And the case, uh, Whitford versus Gill, focuses on whether the Republican-run Wisconsin legislature's gerrymandering was so egregious that it violated the equal protection rights of Democrats in the states. Now, the court has in the past overturned gerrymandered district on districts on racial grounds, but it's never done so due to extensive partisan bias. But in 2004, the court nearly ruled that extreme political gerrymandering was unconstitutional, but Justice Kennedy, who would have been that decisive fifth vote, he didn't go along because he felt that a clear standard didn't exist for determining how much political gerrymandering is too much. And so in the intervening years, political scientists have developed these kind of standards. And in arguments before the court this week, it sure looked like Justice Kennedy was leaning toward accepting those standards. And based on what we know of the the court as it stands now, there's a I think a pretty good chance there's going to be a five to four decision announced sort of in favor of that which would really uh, potentially make some big changes for uh, what states can do in that. So first, Jay, do you have any predictions on this? And second, what are your thoughts about the underlying issue here? Uh, my prediction: uh, five four. The Wisconsin system stands. Really? Okay, um, I'm going to go the other way on that. So you and, think Kennedy's going to sling you know, going to stay with the conservatives? Are, okay, there's a there is a test uh but it is it is a difficult test. It is a fact intensive test. I think the courts are going to be really reluctant to open the door on something like this that could uh realistically throw every race in the country into court. I think that would be a horrible uh, horrible decision, uh, and horrible repercussions, uh, afterwards. And, and you, you can explain how the, um, and again, cause it is sort of a, a little bit of a, a complicated formula that they would use for this test. It essentially says that your, your ability to, um, uh, to gain a, a, an overall majority in the legislature should not exceed your ability to, um, and I'm, I'm phrasing it wrong. You, you should do it because you're the social scientist. Sure. Um, well, the, the underlying idea that the, the measure that uh, Justice Kennedy seemed to seek and that I think political scientists uh, came up with, there are a number of measures, but the one that's being considered here is something called the efficiency gap, which is basically this idea of the, uh, the, percentage of what are called wasted votes. In other words, votes that uh, go toward a, a, a losing candidate or do not reflect your sort of the, your representation. Now it gets obviously- a Had lot- you been in another district, your vote might've accounted more, so to speak. Sure. Now, 
now you should point out that it it certainly isn't the, you know the most simple straightforward thing in the world but the idea as chief justice roberts called the the, the research sociological gobbledygook and you know i, I was really disappointed well, well he didn't, I, I mean i i, I I mean, I think it should be, I don't. I don't think he called it gobbledygook. He said, "I think that it would be perceived by the the man on the street as gobbledygook." Okay, you you could be right about that. Fair enough, but but I thought maybe you're right. Okay, but the point being is that you know, it is a complex. Not, I mean, it's not incredibly complex, but here's the problem as I see it: is that I think Justice Kennedy was right, and I think that the court was right earlier, saying, you know, if we're going to for the first time ever, uh, if we're going to get involved into this thicket, this this uh, what we've said before is a political question. You can't expect us to do that unless there's a clear standard that we that we buy into. For saying because it seems like that there was a fairly strong agreement even on the court that partisan gerrymandering when it gets extreme was is absolutely not the intent of what how the system's supposed to work, and that as a fundamental principle. Uh, uh, legislators should not be able to pick their districts based on based on a uh, partisan uh, partisan makeup. That districts should be you know contiguous, should be uh, geographically compact, should be based on communities of interest. I think everyone right, agrees right, and that. But, but and those rules have been around for a long time. The the contiguous, geographically compact, and so forth. And then you add on the layer of um, uh, the civil rights. Issues as far as having minority majority districts and so forth. I mean, those those rules are all uh, have preexisted for for a long time. To me, the 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 weird thing is, and the the baffling thing is, is where do you find in the Constitution? Well, I know where they they say they find it, but where do you find in the Constitution essentially the right to to have your side win? It's not, well, it's, that's not uh, it, what it is. You know, and again, there, there's the claim that it's a First, first Amendment right of association. Yeah, it's, um, it's not a right to have your side win. That's that, a false that characterization. Sort of, I mean, it's just, it's, it's not, it's not what, I mean, the right, the right is saying that it's that, that's what it is, but that's a, that's a false characterization and no serious person is arguing that there's a well, right to have so, your side so. win. I mean, I, I, I live in a heavily democratic district. Um, uh, my vote uh, does not really count um, to the extent to the extent. I mean, it counts in terms of, you know, they add up the numbers and there's this many in this majority and, and they win. Uh, so your and, vote and counts. Look, there's something to that's that's what democracy is. Right. Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, now. Now, if I if I live somewhere else, uh, maybe I would be the majority, but I don't. Um, I, so I, I guess I'm you know, I'm I'm sort of. You know, I you know ought to ought I to to run for office, and uh, then when I lose, which I would lose dramatically, uh, you know, go to court and say, "Hey, come on, man, this district just isn't fair." Well, I don't it, have I a mean, fighting chance. It would it would depend on how the district was put together. Let's say that a district was drawn where uh, I don't know fifty miles of the district was I seventy five, just so it could connect. You know, one highly democratic area to another highly democratic area and another part of the state that really had no connection to northeastern Ohio, I think you would have a case. And and that to me is that to me is the point. Right now you can look at some of these districts and just say, you know, kind of like how the, the courts, you know, famous the Justice Potter's famous test for pornography, right? I know it when I see it. And I think we all kind of can look at some of these districts and go, oh come on. 
But the problem is, is oh come on, isn't enough of a standard? I absolutely agree with that, you know. But but there comes but, a but point. There's, but there's also another remedy uh, other than the courts, and that's that's the political remedy. Except that's the if, problem. If you don't like how the districts are drawn, they're redrawn every ten years, and, and and inevitably then goes to court on on all the other issues we just talked about, the contiguousness and and the, the racial issues and so forth. Um, you know, so so look. A reason that that uh, Republicans have enjoyed a a benefit in statewide or in state races in Ohio for for about twenty years is they have held the offices that control the the uh, uh, the apportionment process. Um, there's there's no rule that says Republicans always have to control those offices. There's no reason Democrats can't control those offices. Uh, they just haven't fielded uh, you know good enough candidates to do so. So, I mean, I think that's my, my point is, is not that there's not a problem. It's that the remedy is a political one, not a judicial one. Well, I, I think ideally what we would have is a system where legislatures weren't actually the only ones doing this process and to make the, make the whole process less political. And in fact, there is a movement for that to happen, you know, with uh, independent. Yeah. Oh, and we've, we've got some of that actually here, here, uh, here in Ohio as well. Yeah. And there's other states that are doing that. So again, I I am all for that and all on board with that. My problem is is the court weighing well, in on it. Ohio isn't really um uh I mean they have a board and so forth, but I mean I I think it's 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 kind of a little partisan, isn't it, in Ohio? Well it's I mean it it is in that look, the the final decision is is still the legislature. Yeah. Yeah, they're, uh, they're right now it, it, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, I mean, but that's that's sort of Per the Constitution, I'm not sure how you get around that, uh, unless you you change state constitutions, which if states want to do that, they can. Um, uh, but I, I, you know, I guess the, the framers saw saw this as a uh, as a political process. And and look, uh, Elbridge uh, Jerry was uh, Gary, I suppose is how he pronounced it. But he was in the room when when they did this, you know. So there wasn't. This wouldn't have been a surprise to the founders, uh, because because they knew old Elbridge, and uh, but they were still comfortable that the the political process could uh, could take care of this, uh, rather than the judiciary. Well, the founders didn't know about the kind of technology that's available for this sort of thing, you know. And I I know people go back to that argument again and again and again, but to me, it's yet another example of where uh, technology uh, advancements in society of various types have sort of outstripped what these admittedly brilliant men in 1789, you know, had, had come up with. And so going back to, well, the founders, you know, knew this would be an issue or something. I, you know, to me, that, that rings a little hollow for me, but, but I, you know, I think at least I feel like it's good to know that in some States, I think there were 13 States that use, uh, what I would call sort of strict redistricting commissions. And that's, you know, that's kind of uh, focused on the, on the West. California does it. Arizona does it. There's a lot in the Pacific Northwest and so forth, a few states in the Northeast. But at least there's some kind of movement toward that. And I think ultimately it would be better to not have the courts making these decisions. And I think it would be better in the long run because Republicans aren't always going to have this stranglehold over state legislatures. It goes back and forth over time to make this a truly nonpartisan process. And I would hope that over time more states do that. And I at least have semi-optimistic that we'll maybe get more states over time doing this kind of thing. Okay. But, but, but let's put it this way. They, they won't do it if the court weighs in. 
Oh, I think, no, I, th- I think that, because, I think they because, certainly would. Uh, otherwise at that point then, or, or let's put, I, I should, I should paraphrase. They could do it, but it won't matter because, because they're, they're, uh, they're, uh, well, sure it, would. it will always be subject to judicial review and you will see, uh, losing candidates from everywhere, uh, filing lawsuits and it's, it's going to be, and I think that's, that was to, uh, Robert's point. Um, an erosion of our confidence in the judiciary. Uh, and look, in, in democracy, if you can't vote and say, okay, we won, um, th- this is like every election is going to be decided, you know, sometime in December or January, uh, because you'll have the vote, you'll count the votes, then you go to court, um, and, and then you'll you'll get the results, and then you'll appeal. And, I mean, it's, it's I think that's, that's the, the big, bigger problem, that we're putting our government into the hands of the courts. Um, it will be Bush versus Gore in every state representative race, every congressional race. Um, and I know it, I would, well, throw before you, before out. you, before you throw, before you throw that out, hold on, hold on. You're wrong okay. about this. And let me say why, before you get into another point, you're wrong about this because that's exactly why justice Kennedy said we need a clear standard. So this idea that everyone will sue, well, no, because if you don't meet that standard, that's not going to get anywhere. So that's exactly why justice Kennedy was right. And that's exactly what a clear standard prevents. So you're, you're just, you're just, you're just well, that, wrong about this. Wow. Well, that's that's a relief because uh, I was afraid there might be people who would just sue just to just to sue and to keep their name in the paper. Well, people can do um, that now anyway. Uh, I mean, so I'm, I mean, I'm, that I'm, doesn't I'm change anything. In the real world. I mean, no, I, uh, you're just wrong. you know the, the the inclination would be why don't I sue? Yeah, you'll lose, but you know what? I'm going to lose fighting for democracy. I'm going to I'm going to make my name better. It's going to be a beautiful publicity stunt. I'll be fighting for the rights of all those people who voted for me. And, and if I, if I lose, it's just because those darn courts are so crooked and I'm going to run again next time. Well, people do that now. I, that doesn't change anything. So you're, I, I think you're just, you know, just fundamentally wrong on this. Okay. How, how about one, one last thing? And I know we're running long on this, but here was my hypothetical that occurred to me in the middle of the night. Uh, would, would you, would you agree that if this, if, if the court rules, as you think, there would essentially be a fundamental right to be able to vote in a, a district that is, uh, for, for lack of better purpose, lack of better word, fair. I'm always troubled when an attorney starts off a question to me saying, would you agree? It would just agree? screams yes. trap. Um, um, no, I would not agree. Oh, okay. Well then there, there goes the hypothetical. <laughs> yeah. Then why do you hate fairness? Um, No, I think, no, I I see where you're going with this. What do you do about, what do you do about a Senate race? Because on the one hand, of course, Senate seats aren't gerrymandered. It's, it's just the state borders, which were created by the racist white males hundreds of years ago. So they're probably no good. But, you know, if there's, if there's a right to have that, that, that type of representation in one house of Congress, why not the other? I don't, well, I don't agree there's a right. I, 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 well, there's I, not yet, but I mean, if I know I don't agree even if like the court, that. I don't, I don't agree that the court would be creating a new right. I, you know, I believe this goes under, uh, equal protection. Uh, it's a, another issue, but so I don't think any rights are being created. I understand the argument, but I, I believe it's a, a, not a correct argument. Well, let me, okay. Let me put it this way. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to lose this on, in semantics, equal protection, right? I mean, it's not a new right, but it, it's applying the equal protection doctrine to an area where it's never been applied before. I mean, it's a new right in that sense. 
It's, um, an, it's an extension, sure, and it's an extension of an existing right. And so it gets down to, I think you're right, and we talk about semantics, is what does equal protection exactly mean? And, you know, reasonable people can disagree about that. And certainly uh, I and, and a lot of people on the left would have a much more expansive definition of that than you and a lot of people on the right would have. Yeah. All right. But just uh, just everyone think about that. Think about that, the Senate. Uh, and if you live in a solid red or a solid blue blue uh, state, uh, is is your vote essentially a wasted vote? And uh, if you have an equal protection right to have your vote not be wasted, uh, ought ought not the the uh, the judiciary make some accommodations uh, for you? Well, there, uh, there is no that. such right, and there never will be. All right. <laughs> Well, let's wrap things up, Jay. Uh, it is time for what we're reading. I think we can kind of fit that in. Uh, so I, I had something that's really, really kind of wonky. Um, budget reconciliation. We've talked about budget reconciliation before, uh, you know, because it's basically how the majority in the Senate tries to push everything through. The Democrats did it when they were in the majority. The Republicans are pushing it even more on things. And whenever I read about budget reconciliation, uh, it's always, they always call it this arcane process. They just kind of leave it like that, like a black box. And it always frustrates me because while I understand what budget reconciliation is, and I'm pretty sure that, you know, and I know that you do, I think that does a disservice to a lot of people. And so I, I went in search of what I thought would be a really good, clear, no-nonsense explanation of what that means exactly. And I found a great one from the uh, Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And so I would suggest people take a look at that. It really clears up, I think, a lot of misconceptions and just makes, I think it's, I think it's just really good. It only take maybe five, 10 minutes to read. I thought it was great. Uh, if you're interested in a more extended discussion of budget reconciliation, including uh, the intricacies of the bird rule and some history and other things like that, um, Check out, the, Vox did a Weeds podcast on that. Uh, now, I prefer the Senate on Budget and Policy Priorities explanation because I always think like for complex procedural things, I like a written reference to refer to. But I thought the Weeds podcast episode on this was uh, really pretty good. In fact, when the Weeds guys focus on, on technical stuff, they're really good. When they focus on political stuff, then they kind of lose me because Ezra Klein is just basically a mouthpiece for the left. And just his starting oh, assumption <laughs> is that Republicans are evil and stupid. And he just, I, you know, I, I just let me go on a little mini rant. I realized that the thing I hate about Vox is just Ezra Klein. The rest of them, I think, are really pretty good. But Ezra Klein annoys me for so many reasons. He throws down F-bombs like he's trying to be this tough, cool guy where he doesn't need to. And he's just... He's just, oh, I just, I have a, I have a real Ezra Klein problem. I know. But anyway. I, I would just, just for our listeners, because I'm sure virtually all of them know, but, but just in case, yeah, budget reconciliation is the process whereby uh, you avoid the Senate uh, requirement, the, the cloture rule, the, the filibuster rule that would, would require a, a 60 vote majority uh, and allow issues related to expenditures uh, to pass by a, a, a simple majority. That's probably the, that's probably the easiest way to to explain it, and and the 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 again you get into then stranger things of uh, of it's it's sort of authorized for a certain term on certain you you decide you're going to have this bill can be subject to budget reconciliation and there's certain rules that you have to work within with the CBO that then there's an expiration date and so forth but but the the simple gist is you get to pass it through the Senate with fifty uh, uh, fifty one rather than um, 
uh, the 60. Yeah. Yeah, and for a lot of reasons that the the CB CBPP and the, the the weeds get into, it's not a great way for passing good policy for a lot of reasons. But it's kind of what you're stuck with if you want to ram something through and you don't have sixty votes. Yep. So, uh, Jay, do you have anything this week? I, I do, and and this is something. Um, this is maybe a little little more hopeful for everyone. Okay, we need uh, it, and it is it's a, a genre of book that I'm typically not a fan of, and that is the the book written by a uh, sitting politician. Um, but I'm reading uh, Jeff Flake's Conscience of a Conservative, uh, very intentionally uh, named after uh, another, the other famous book of that title by the, the person who formerly held his Arizona Senate seat, uh, Barry Goldwater. Um, uh, Flake's attempt is to sort of it's really kind of to distance himself from the the Trumpian uh, wing of the party. He is he has been a pretty vocal Trump critic and vice versa um, throughout this. Uh, but I, I think it's 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 good to to read, and, and I, I I would hope that people on the left might take a look at this uh, because what he does is he sort of he he it, I don't know rails against uh, what has become viewed as conservatism, uh, which, which is again, this sort of, uh, uh, Trumpism nationalism that, that, that doesn't necessarily really fit with, with what, uh, conservatism classically meant. Um, uh, the, the sort of meanness, uh, about it in our, in our current moment. Um, so I, I, I like it. I, I don't agree necessarily with all his policy prescriptions that he kind of gets into. Uh, and there is a lot that is is just sort of anti-Trump, and a lot of people might really like that. Um, and, and I mean, and it's also, it's one of these, the kind of book that you float out there when, hey, I might be running for president or something. Um, uh, but but it's, it's, it's short and it's worth reading, uh, especially for those uh, who, who don't read um, or who aren't. I guess in the conservative sort of sort of wing, or or, or apt to read that kind of stuff. Uh, I think it gives a good eye opening sort of view of of how conservatives, most conservatives, view the world. All right. Yeah, I've heard some good things about it, uh, and I think it's a great recommendation. You know, it occurs to me before we leave, Jay, um, that this has largely been a uh, something that we haven't seen in forever—a largely Trump-free episode of the Politics Guys. I feel, I feel sort of, I don't know, um, positive about that. We focused a lot on policy and not so much on the, on the politics, which is, it's kind of a nice, you know, kind of a refreshing change. I'm sure we'll be back to much more Donald Trump next week, but I just wanted to point that out. All right. Well, that does it for this episode. Thanks everyone for listening. We hope you liked what you heard and that you'll check out today's sponsor, Blue Apron. Check out this week's menu and get $30 off your first meal with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash TPG. You know, listener support really helps us out. We truly appreciate it. If you're interested, go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. And if you want to support us without spending anything, it'd be great if you could share this episode and also pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter or leave a review on iTunes. If you want to get in touch with us, mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page where you can message us when we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.